Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Good morning. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth is here with us in the studio again for a record-breaking, what is it, four, four months? Five, yeah, five four. months. And joining us by phone today is Richard Hill host of WP Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand and rotating host of the program Mic Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Richard, how are you this morning? I am awake. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 one one checkbox you can put yeah. there. Um, I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program Counterpoint that airs Monday evenings 8 to 10 p.m. and Executive producer of the syndicated Between the Lines program, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In just a little bit, we're going to be joined by Nation Magazine national correspondent John Nichols to talk about the fight within the Democratic Party over the future of President Biden's $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill, obstructionist Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, And I'm sure we'll also be touching on the House investigation into the January 6th pro-Trump insurrection. Before we hear from John Nichols, uh, let's hear first from Ruthann about uh, what you've been thinking about this past month. Well, you know, every time you turn on the news, you, your world of rage becomes larger. <laughs> your world of hope uh, needs to be applauded uh, the way fairies are in uh, um, Peter Pan. Anyway, did you hear what happened last night? Thanks to a compliant judge, Texas is again allowed to enforce its anti-woman agenda, albeit just for now. In a country where Mitch McConnell still seems to run things, thanks to the judicial benches he has plottingly packed with right-wingers for years and the party he has handed over to Trump. Since no one evidently takes civics in high school anymore, and those who once did have forgotten it, I've heard commentators say that it's now up to the universities to teach students about democracy. That's currently not a good place to do it. The concept of academic freedom has been vigorously exercised and defended by the American Association of University Professors since its founding. Our philosophy is that truth emerges when all voices are heard, but political groups outside campus have from time to time both attempted to exploit and attempted to shut down the defenders of the concept of free exchange of ideas, notably the professor's watch list run by conservative advocacy organization Turning Point USA that coalesced and burst into activity early in the Trump regime, used student spies to videotape for broadcast over the Internet and deployment 
during individual tenure hearings, professors saying radical things so that perhaps they could be denied tenure, and meanwhile, conservative students could avoid taking their classes. This is like, uh, it must be a model for what happened in the TV series, The Chair. I watched The Chair out of curiosity and uh, am convinced, I hope, that I have never seen a department like the English department on the chair. It's a, it's a, it's a bizarre thing altogether um, that I will be commenting on. But uh, let's see if I can find my place back, back in, this, uh, in this script that I've written. It's important to realize that unlike the world of the chair, American universities today are staffed disproportionately by adjunct faculty. Semester-by-semester semester hires without job protections such as tenure or even the accrual of seniority, with non-proportional pay, without participatory representation on curriculum and planning committees, many without a voice in the departmental affairs or on personnel committees, subject to their student evaluation scores and perhaps undefined collegiality in the question of reappointment. I can say from far too much experience that this results in great inflation and in a lot of self-revisions, uh, self um, self-censorship, and suspension of critical judgment. Despite having won important uh, uh, points for academic values and practices, American university faculty have not managed to establish a model of democracy. And with most of the popular choices of major, the STEM courses of science, technology, engineering, and math, encouraged by future salaries and by where the planning and development money is, the kinds of classes that nurture ideas of individual responsibility, free speech, critical thinking, ongoing debate, and the greater good fight for enrollment to survive. So look instead at the example of the Texas high school where minority students are trying to implement democracy as it concerns their own school lives, but the parents and administrators are against it. The students are their own democracy lab trying to protect a principal who has encouraged learning about American history, including the systemic racism that is the subject of critical race theory, a concept developed by university professors. The parents in this school and the Board of Education see such ideas as subversive and dangerous. A couple of nights ago, the students officially lost a strike that they were holding, uh, picketing outside in a school that, that is only 50% um, uh, white now, uh, from a high of 75% white in 2008. The name of the school, if you want to Google it and read about it in a more developed way, is the Colleyville Heritage High School. And from what you read, you may want to join me in renaming it the Colleyville White Heritage Training School. Still, uh, because protests of, all, of any kind, uh, protesters of any kind, are diehards, and professors of any kind are diehards. We have to. We have some hope in terms of the ability for people to discover democracy by themselves. The current AAUP president says our commitment to academic freedom is rooted in a vision of democracy that thrives on dissent, critical inquiry, free speech, and free research. Uh, the AAUP pledges to continue to join with other organizations to resist threats to this. Wherever you are, keep working. That's what it boils down to. Democracy is a process, not a reading assignment. 
and it is a process that involves individuals, not necessarily members of of, uh, groups that have access to web hate sites. Thank you, Ruth. I I hope it was a little bit coherent. It was. It was. And I'm sure we'll get feedback uh, from our audience, especially those in the academia. Academia, yes. Uh, I just got a short rant here before we get to our guest, as Richard will in a moment. This week, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen's testified before Congress and confirmed what we already knew, that Facebook's priorities are to maximize profits at all costs, even if that means being a global vehicle to spread hate, racism, and health disinformation that both provokes violence and lethal decisions about masks and vaccines that have killed thousands during a public health emergency, a pandemic that has witnessed more than 700,000 deaths in the U.S., When Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp had an outage earlier this week, it disrupted vital communication among businesses and individual users all over this country and around the world. My view, and I think there's a growing number of people across the country and the world who believe Facebook is a predatory monopoly and should be broken up under existing antitrust laws. What's more, we need to think about Facebook and other vital communications platforms as vital links in how we talk with each other across cities, states, and nations. We need to reimagine social media as a critical utility that should be publicly owned and come under a democratic control that uh, must be converted from a soulless, heartless, amoral machine to make money to a communication service organized for the common good. That's my rant on Facebook. Richard, you have something for us. Uh, I have a word or two, I guess. Um, I just wanted to uh, start out with uh, something I'm sure that John is going to be talking about, but uh, I'll introduce the topic and um, leave some space for my and your outrage. Um, Speaking of which, the more... Kirsten Sinema's recent maunderings and behavior regarding the health care and watch her grotesque contortions to avoid explaining her reversal on the issue of controlling pharmaceutical prices, the more enraged Democrats, and we all are feeling. Six months ago, uh, Sinema made these comments, well, actually, before that, um, as, late, as late as uh, uh, February of last year, Cinema made this pronouncement in an op-ed, quote, Congress must address the cost of prescription drugs. Today, even Arizonans have the insurance, uh, th- who have insurance, struggle to afford the medicine they need. That's why I'm pursuing policies to ensure life-saving drugs like EpiPens and insulin are affordable and available to Arizonans, especially out of our uh, uh, for, for our senior citizens. And um, <clears throat> six months ago, she uh, made these comments to the National Restaurant Association's national conference. Um, quote: Senators need to hear from their constituents, uh, implying that uh, her. Um, complete avoidance of communication with her constituents and other lawmakers. 
um, is uh, inappropriate. So she says, hearing from constituents early and often makes a world of difference. You don't want to assume that because someone's a Republican or because they're a Democrat that you know exactly how they stand. They may have a public position on an issue, but it's also that person's job to represent his or her to represent his or her constituents, and you can provide them with key information to help them best represent their constituency. So this, um, watch, as I said, watching her grotesque contortions to avoid explaining her reversal on the issue of pharmaceutical prices uh, is, it's, it, it's enough to, uh, you know, definitely enough outrage for one day, but it seems to get deeper and more uh, egregious each each day as she continues to, with with uh, complete um, shame, shameless uh, posture, avoid uh, not only her constituents but any conversation with her fellow lawmakers to uh, justify her, as I said, total reversal on the uh, issue of pharmaceutical prices. So I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about that with John, but I uh, wanted to get that outrage off my chest. All right. We, we do have John on the line right now. Great. Okay. Thank you, Richard. This is, his, this is Resistance Roundtable. I'm very happy to uh, welcome our good friend John Nichols. Uh, John writes about politics for the Nation magazine as its national affairs correspondent. John is also a contributing writer for the Progressive magazine in, in These Times and associate editor of the Capital Times, a daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. Nichols is the author of many books. Recent titles include Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America, as well as The Genius of Impeachment. His newest book is titled The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. John is a good friend and a longtime supporter of WPK and an independent, non-commercial community radio all over this planet. Thank you for uh, joining us again this morning, John. We really appreciate your view on what is going on in the world. Thank you for being here. It's an honor to be with you, and thanks for having me. John, we're very happy you could join us because um, of the the major debates going on in Washington, D.C. around these infrastructure bills. In your recent Nation magazine article titled, Biden Should Be Selling His Plan, Not Compromising Away Its Promise, you pointed out that Americans uh, generally across the country don't really care about inside the Beltway process issues or internal battles between the majority of the Democratic Party and a few obstructionists in the House and Senate blocking passage of the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill. What they really care about, is what you say, is uh, will the bill make their lives better? Will uh, this bill reverse the austerity budgets of the past 40 years that created the worst economic inequality in the U.S. since the Gilded Age? Expand on that, if you would. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you get right to the heart of what I was trying to say there. And I appreciate you uh, reflecting on it. Uh, look, to my view, the great failure of the Democrats up to this point uh, has been that they put together a, a quite good proposal 
it's not it's not all fleshed out. It's not perfect. It's not as big as I would make it. But you know, there's a lot in there, and this is a piece of legislation, this reconciliation bill, that is sufficient to at least begin to make the pivot that is necessary to address fundamental economic, social, and racial justice issues, as well as you know, to make some genuine efforts to, to save the planet. Again, it's not everything we need, but there's a lot there. It's really vital. And the remarkable thing about it is, unlike most big Republican proposals, which are, you know, trying to sell incredibly unpopular things, trying to, you know, take from the poor and give to the rich, uh, this proposal is packed with items that are staggeringly popular, that poll in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, these ideas like extending Medicare to cover vision, dental, and hearing, uh, guaranteeing free family and medical leave, or you know, giving people at least some guarantee of time off if somebody gets sick in their family, uh, providing free community college for working class students, creating a climate core that will uh, at least begin to address some of the fundamental issues uh, raised by the climate crisis and put people to work at good jobs, paying for caregiving in ways that allow families to uh, keep elderly relatives and, and you know, family members with disabilities at home uh, rather than to have them institutionalized or uh, if they do have to go into some sort of facility where they're guaranteed a high-quality care at, at a price where people you know, aren't bankrupted. All of these proposals pull through the roof. Everybody likes them. And yet, I will guarantee you, Scott, that most Americans don't know that what I just listed is in this proposal. They just know it's a $3.5 trillion plan and that Joe Manchin wants to save some money. Right? That's about the extent of a lot of the coverage of this. And that's a real failure. Uh, so what I argue in the piece uh, is that instead of negotiating this thing down, as seems to be the direction the president said it, uh, he ought to go on national television. He ought to explain what's in the plan, not once, but often. He ought to hit the road. He should go to West Virginia and, and ask the fundamental question. You know, what's wrong with giving seniors in West Virginia dental care? He should go to Arizona and ask the fundamental question. What's wrong with giving working-class students uh, in Arizona free college? In my sense is that doing so, whether he mentions Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's names or not, uh, will send a clear signal and, frankly, you know, put the question, if you will. And that's what really needs to happen here. Rather than negotiating things away, it's much better, better to fight for what I think can still be gotten. Very good, John. You know, it's always said that the Democrats never fail to bring a pillow to a knife fight, right? <laughs> I mean, it, exactly it's, right. It's it's like they're they're folding before they even fight. And you know, I I hated Ronald Reagan's policy, but he was known as a fighter, right? He he would go and and fight for some of these crazy ideas and these very despotic policies. But people around the country admired him for fighting. Uh, well, he also remember he communicated. What what did he call him? How how is he referred to in history? The great communicator. What was that about? It wasn't that he was just charming. It was that when he had a proposal, whether it was popular or not, 
whether it was appealing or not, he figured out how to present that proposal to the American people, often going on national television, doing, you know, whatever, using whatever platform he had, uh, and he succeeded. It's that communication component of it that the Democrats miss. That is, it is the failure to communicate that is quite frequently the pillow uh, at the knife fight. Ruth Ann, do you have a comment on this? Huge issue facing us all. Yeah, I have a couple. Hi, John. It's great to have you on the show again. Um, I, when I teach writing, I uh, often talk about uh, Barack Obama's speech at the Democratic campaign of whatever that year was. Uh, the past is, has become a blur to me. Um, his, the speech that he gave, I, I had never heard him speak before, and it was full of things I could see in my own mind, uh, a discussion of aspects of, of actual life. And I turned to my um, true love and I said, I would vote for him for president because he made a world when he spoke. And I talked to my students about that, too. You can't communicate with general terms. You have to help people see uh, the concrete aspect of what you have in mind, and I, I think that's what you're suggesting too. Uh, Democrats mm-hmm. don't—you don't know what what what's in any of the bills, and all you hear from the media is how much things are going to cost and what strategies are being used. Uh, in other words, sort of the foot, professional football view of of, of the world. Um, and I, I like that you're—I you, think you're saying the same thing. Totally, Ruth. And um, and I think that that's that you said it better than I, um, as as I would expect from a great teacher of writing. Uh, <laughs> that that it is about painting pictures. It's about uh, bringing people into the conversation in the way that is most effective. And uh, I was never a fan of Bill Clinton's laundry list speeches. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Clinton would sometimes go and give a State of the Union address that took an hour and a half, and it was literally one thing after another. And yeah, there was often a lot of good stuff in there, but nobody's going to remember it. What I believe is that your focus on Obama is very wise there, uh, but he wasn't alone. Reagan did much the same thing. Franklin right. Roosevelt did much the same thing. You know, it was this ability to get to people at a fundamental level, get, you know, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but get into their head, right? Get, right. get to a place where they're thinking about what you're saying and do it not in complex ways, not going on and on, but rather just some basic premises. For instance, let's think about for a second about the caregiving component of this reconciliation bill, something that Ajahn Poo and others have advocated for for decades and has now finally gotten at least to the edge of federal policy. Well, you know, that can sound say like, oh, you want to spend $400 billion on caregiving or some other amount. Um, that That's maybe for technocrats, for bureaucrats, that may be useful. But the way to talk about it is to say, uh, how many of you have had an elderly parent who has had to face a very difficult choice of whether to leave their home, the home they've, they've lived in all your life, maybe the home, the, the home they grew, that you grew up in, to leave that home uh, and to go into a care setting uh, because they, they can't quite take care of themselves. It's not that they're, you know, completely unable to care for themselves, but they're in a they're in a difficult position. Well, how would it make your life better if we guaranteed that caregivers had the pay, the resources, the support 
in order to provide high-quality care at home or in high-quality, excellent facilities um, for the elderly, for people with disabilities, and that it wouldn't bankrupt you. Now, just talking about it in that way, I tell you, uh, it's been an experience my family's gone through. I would bet you that's an experience that, you know, some huge portion of Americans have gone through or going through themselves. And it, it's, you start to talk about it, I, I think people click in and they say, yes, I, I would like that guarantee. I would like that protection. And the same with vision, dental, and hearing in Medicare. I think that a lot of younger voters uh, may not even know that Medicare doesn't cover those things. And certainly a lot of older voters know that. And so you, by talking about these things, you make connections with people and you isolate those who are in opposition. Because, again, you go to that core question, uh, go to West Virginia. What's wrong with giving seniors in West Virginia dental care? Go to Arizona. What's wrong with uh, putting young people to work in Arizona trying to, to save the planet? Right? I mean, you start talking about these things. I think people connect with it, and then suddenly it's mansion cinema, the so-called moderates in the House, who have to explain why they're not for these good ideas rather than, you know, Bernie Sanders and the president and others saying, you know, why these are good ideas. I Proof of what you just said is that when you were talking about um, the, the assistance for people with elderly parents, I, I started thinking about my mother's dilemma when my father began to slip into Alzheimer's. So be a, giving a specific makes you a person speaking to another person and evokes the, the person you're talking to does half the work then because he brings his, his uh, ability to identify with what you're saying. Uh, so uh, can you go and be a speech coach for some, for some of our... <laughs> for you. I mean, you get these same concepts. Um, look, it's an it's a embarrassing reality that uh, too often the Democrats, when they are in power, tend to focus on governing. And you say, well, that's what we want them to do. You know, we elect people to go and do the work. And, and that's right. But they lose sight of communicating. And that's really a mistake, because at the end of the day, in the modern era, uh, and I would even argue, you know, look, you go back to the founding of the American experiment, you have you know, people, committees of correspondence, and people, you know, Tom Paine and others writing and right. communicating. So it's never been anything but us. But in this modern age, uh, when you have power, when you have the ability to govern, uh, even if you have substantial majorities, it still becomes necessary to communicate. And there are so many platforms on which to do it, you know, traditional media, social media, uh, in person, literally going places and speaking to rallies. And, and I don't think that Democrats think hard enough when they put down major proposals about how to have a communication strategy, how to go out and do the, the selling of the plan. Now, Bernie Sanders thinks about this. He's gone to Iowa and to Indiana and other places to sell the plan. Uh, he's on TV all the time. Pramila Jayapal, I think, has done a, a terrific job. As she has, yeah. Congressional Progressive Caucus chair. But uh, I, I don't see the president doing as much as I'd like to see him do. This isn't condemning him. It's not picking on him. It's just saying, you know, this is something he could do and that's something he should do. 
Richard, do you have a comment or question for John on this topic? Yeah, sort of following up on that, you know, when when Biden was elected and, you know, many of us were disappointed that we felt we, we, we had a, a mediocre uh, person who, who was not going to um, put forward any kind of really progressive, inspiring uh, proposals to lead the country in a different direction. Suddenly we were amazed and uh, delighted to see the array of things he was proposing, and uh, the Build Back Better Act was uh, replete with, as you pointed out, very, very uh, uh, constructive and progressive uh, solutions to the endemic and uh, very egregious problems that faced by the American people for, for, for many decades. So, you know, I had this sense of, wow, that's great, but how long before this starts to unravel? How long before uh, this, um, what appears to be a progressive Democrat, centrist democratic coalition, uh, actually um, frays at the edges and, and, and the ability to sustain and, to main, and maintain and actually bring it about? Uh, uh, starts to um, to uh, come apart at the seams, and I had the you know dark uh, pessimistic sense that it was only a matter of time. So here we are, you know, six months later, and um, we're now we're fighting for the bare bones of the uh, Build Back Better Act. We're trying to, you know, to maintain partial funding for these things, or maybe cut down on the number of years that the proposal will be in in uh, in in power, so that the expenditures will be less. Um, and I'm just wondering, what's your sense of is it possible in in this democracy, this sort of clown show democracy we have now, for a progressive uh, agenda of this type to actually reach fruition, given the, um, at this stage, two senators uh, with um, very, very um, dubious uh, reasoning and um, justification are opposing uh, the proposal, uh, just just two, right, out of out of uh, the, the Senate majority, can do this, and not to mention all the other institutional and uh, bureaucratic ways that the uh, Republicans can jam up the works. But I, did you and do you feel that such a proposal is even possible? in this, uh, as I said, clown show uh, democracy that we have now? Well, you raise a lot of good points. And uh, look, I think if we cut to the to the heart of the matter, uh, Pramila Jayapal, I think it's pretty best when she says that 96% of Democrats support the Build Back Better agenda. 96% of Democrats in Congress are for it. 
uh, about 4% are not on board. That's two uh, in the Senate and a handful in the House. Unfortunately, because the Senate and the House are so narrowly divided, uh, they have that leverage to complicate this situation. Now, because you can't reach across the aisle and find Republicans to you know, undo the damage done by this handful of Democrats, you have to focus on these Democrats that have created the crisis, have created the problem by their refusal to go along with what is the overwhelming desire of grassroots Democrats, the overwhelming desire of independents, and a lot of Republicans even, uh, to make these changes. And so that's where the communications part comes in. It, it is the key to making democracy function. And you're right. I mean, the barriers to a functional democracy in a democratic republic are so great that they themselves invite uh, uh, examination. They invite a response. And we could deviate here and spend the whole time, our whole time together talking about you know, what's wrong with the way that this whole system operates. It's wrong that the loser of a presidential race can become president of the United States because of the Electoral College. It's wrong that because of gerrymandering uh, and other moves that basically warp our maps of districts, that one party can get a clear majority of the votes, and yet the losing party can end up with a majority in Congress. And that has happened, at least at sometimes in recent years. It's wrong that we have a United States Senate in which uh, someone elected with 7 million votes in California can have their message from their constituents, this great mass of constituents, canceled out by somebody who was elected with 150,000 votes in Wyoming. I mean, these are not small-D democratic uh, structures. These structures err against a representation of the will of the people. Now, that's all real. But uh, in the moment that we're in, this struggle to make something happen in this narrow window, uh, the question is, can we respond to the crisis? And again, I would argue the response to the crisis is not to say, oh, well, that's it. 4% of Democrats in Congress don't like what's going on, so we're going to have to bend to them. It, the better response is to say, let's go out and figure out how to build enough enthusiasm among the great mass of Americans for what's being proposed, that it becomes impossible for that 4% to resist. I mean, that they, be, that they are put in a position where it just doesn't work. And um, I don't know, I can't guarantee you this is going to work, but I would say this is the thing to try. This is the strategy to adopt rather than one of sitting in, you know, back rooms or even in the Oval Office and negotiating down, down, down from, mm -hmm. remember, there were initial proposals of as much as $10 trillion. Then Bernie Sanders said $6 trillion. We ended up with $3.5 trillion. Progressives said, okay, that's less than we want, but we'll work for that. Mm -hmm. I think you get really, again, you know, I, I repeat myself here, but again to one of the, one of the hearts of the matter. Uh, and, and that is that I think that there's a narrow window right now for Joe Biden and the Democrats to prove that their election in 2020 mattered, right? Because we, you and I know, everybody listening to this show, because they're very aware and very engaged folks, know that the majority is narrow. You know, it's 50-50 in the Senate with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. It's, you know, maybe three, four, five votes in the House, depending on how, how things split up. Uh, and so it, the Democrats don't have the 
Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson level majorities, right? And and you can make excuses about that, but those excuses aren't going to work in 2022. What's going to be remembered and what's going to be understood by the vast majority of voters is Democrats had power for two years, from the start of 2021 um, through 2021 into 2020. And what did they do with it? Right? Well, some of the answers are very good. The American Rescue Plan was good. It did a lot. It didn't do as much as I would have liked, but it did a great deal. Uh, Biden's done a lot of good executive orders. He certainly re- restored a measure of stability, and, and I would even go so far as to say honor to the White House. Uh, but if you're talking about tangible impacts on people's lives, like they can say, wow, my life is better because the Democrats got elected. Um, you've got to do something like this reconciliation plan, and or what I refer to as a social infrastructure plan. It's good to do the physical infrastructure as well. But what you really need to do is create a situation where people can say, when they go to the polls in November of 2022, uh, yeah, I got dental care. I got vision care. I got hearing care. I got we, My family got support for caregiving. Uh, my, our kids are going to college. Uh, you know, we've got free family and medical leave. You know, I, I, got, I just got a job working to save the planet. You know what I mean? When you have all of that energy going, that creates sort of a New Deal, great society moment where people get excited. They're not just you know, drudgery of going to vote. It's like, yeah, I want to vote for this because I want to make sure that we keep this. It's something worth defending. And I also want to make sure that we get more of this. And that's how you get a really meaningful turnout of your base voters in uh, midterm elections. So midterm elections are cursed for the party in power. By and large, the party in power loses seats. If this midterm election simply follows pattern, simply follows pattern, uh, the Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate. So they need to figure out how to break pattern. And the way to break pattern is to put in a a level of uh, uh, change, transformational change, to make real impacts on people's lives so that folks think it does matter to go to vote. And there isn't a reduction in Democratic turnout. It, it's up. Uh, the Republican turnout will be fine. They'll, they'll get a lot of people out based on anger and fear. Uh, but the key is to get Democrats out based on, you know, enthusiasm and hope. John, what do you think of the strategy that's been floated that the Democrats should cut down the term of the uh, Build Back Better Act. So instead of being a 10-year span, which uh, racks the bill up to 3.5 million in order to, uh, 3.5 trillion in order to, uh, you know, enact all this big array of uh, proposals, that they cut it, cut it in half to a five-year term, thereby lowering the price tag to, you know, half of, 3.5 trillion, and uh, taking away the objection of um, you know people like uh, Joe Manchin and I, I don't know we we don't know what Christian Christian Cinema's objections are because she's uh, decided to uh, hold her breath until she turns blue before she talks to anybody about it. But um, do you think that that's a, a valid strategy? And um, I think we can see. That uh, you know, once some of these programs are established and um, in full swing, you know, with 
all the issues around health care and child care and, um, you know, free college for, for working class students, etc. It's going to be extremely difficult for Republicans to take them away. Um, what do you think of that as a uh, as a solution to this uh, loggerheads that we're at right now? It it is, to my mind, a good proposal. Um, it's not perfect, and I'll tell you why. Uh, look, when you say something is for a period of time, there's a danger that um, not just the opponents of the proposal, but even people who are enthusiastic about it, uh, begin to imagine that it's time limited. Right, that it is for a certain period of time we're going to have family medical leave. For a certain period of time you're going to be able to get your teeth fixed. You're going to be able to get your hearing aids. Uh, for a certain period of time you're going to have free college. Uh, that's not that that doesn't really do as much as I'd like to do to help people to you know plan their lives. And it also doesn't do enough to kind of build a baseline from which then we do even more. I mean, obviously extending Medicare to hearing, dental, and vision uh, ought to also include lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare, and it ought to ultimately include a movement for Medicare for all. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to limit that. But with all that said, with that understanding, in this moment, if you go to a five-year plan and say, okay, instead of spending 3.5, we're going to spend, you know, roughly around two trillion, that would certainly supposedly satisfy Mansion. Although I don't know that you could be confident that Mansion and Cinema would go along. But if they did, if you could get the House votes for it then what that does is create a political reality that's kind of appealing, frankly, if you happen to be a Democrat. And that is that um, a five-year plan would go through 2024 into 2025, 2026, uh, creating a situation where uh, for Democrats, they can say, look, we've done this for you, and you need to keep us in position to lock this stuff in. Right to do to extend it to make sure that it's protected. It's actually a reasonably good argument from a political standpoint, and also, I mean, the much more important argument from a moral standpoint. It does get care to people that they might not otherwise get. In uh, the final component, the one that you referenced, Richard, is exactly right. The, the simple truth is, if people um, get a taste of uh, an extended Medicare program, if they get a taste of you know paid family and medical leave, if they get a, a taste of free community college, if they get a taste of, you know, support for caregiving at a level that is that is humane and necessary, if they get a, a taste of uh, the, you know, the real response to climate crisis, and frankly, it, especially if they see the impact over a long period of time or an extended period of time of the child tax credits, which really do address poverty, um, yeah, they're not going to go back. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's, I, can, I can see the appeal of this compromise uh, because it doesn't diminish the programs. It, it keeps the programs. It just doesn't give them to you for as long as you'd like. And if that's where we end up um, and get the votes for it, I would say, fair enough, genius move, go for it, do it. Uh, it's not perfect, but it will uh, it'll get us through this moment. And, again, <laughs> last thing I'd say on it, in 2022, I guarantee you, there's nobody going to say, oh, yeah, it's just five years. I'm not going to vote for the Democrats. <laughs> you know, they're not gonna, that isn't, you're not going to lose people based on that. Where you could lose people is if they cut out the climate section. Then you have a lot of young people who say, 
you know, what's the point here? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. If you were to cut out the community college, right? But just those two components, if they're dramatically diminished or eliminated from the plan, you end up in a situation where a tremendous number of the young voters who were critical to Democrats in 2018 and 2020, or 2020, I apologize, are, are you know, so disenchanted, maybe even feel disenfranchised, that they don't participate in 2022. That could be devastating. Yeah. Hey, are, are you getting the sense that uh, the, the House progressives are um, willing to, you know, to, to, to adopt this as a, as a strategy, uh, you know, in terms of, as, as we said, a, a, a kind of leverage toward the uh, indefinite or full-time enactment of these things eventually. But uh, is there, it, what's, what's the... Uh, What's the drift that you're getting from uh, from your contacts on this issue with, with the Progressive Caucus? Yeah, I've talked to members in the last 24 hours, and and uh, I think and this came up, not me bringing it up, but but members. And so uh, I definitely think it's a, a subject of real conversation, and it's a possibility. But remember, there's a lot of people that have to buy into it. Going to a five-year plan, right? Cutting the timeline in, in half, you still need to guarantee that Mansion and Cinema are going to vote for it, right? Um, yeah. I'm not sure that you get that, and here's where the problem comes in. I don't think Mansion and Cinema care about the price tag, and I don't think they care about debt deficit. I don't think they care about you know what's in or what's out. I think they care about making sure that their campaign donors are happy with what they've done. And to make their campaign donors happy, they have to do two things. Number one, eliminate the, you know, or at least dramatically reduce moves to tax the rich at a level that would sustain this plan. And two, uh, eliminate or dramatically undermine the uh, proposal for the government to negotiate lower drug prices with big pharma. Those big pharma and very wealthy folks, billionaires, the financial industries associated with them, are lobbying incredibly hard against this bill. Uh, and if you reduce this bill to, to just five years, they don't get what they want, right? Big Pharma still ends up in a situation where you've got an ability to negotiate lower drug prices. Uh, billionaires still end up in a situation where they got to pay a lot higher taxes. And so uh, I think that in any negotiation, it's not so much a matter of whether progressives are willing to accept a five-year plan that, that gives you everything that's in this bill just for five years as opposed to ten, or for seven years mm-hmm. as opposed to ten, some measure. It's a question of whether the holdouts um, are honest players. And yeah. part of this assumes that they are, and I'm not sure they are. Yeah. Hey, John, do you have time for one more question from uh, Ruth sure. Ann? Okay, thank you. Yeah, John, uh, you wrote a piece uh, recently reminding readers about the 14th Amendment and that it could be evoked in the political arena, the political structure, to bar Trump and presumably any of the politicians who participated in the January 6th insurrection from running for national political office in the future for betrayal of the oath they took to uphold the Constitution. I just loved it because I, I, 
I was in A Man for All Seasons, and I bought into totally the idea that an oath is a really serious thing. And I think the drafters of the Constitution are from a time when the oath really was a serious thing, too. Do you think this is really possible, and do you think it's too late? I know in your, in your column you said it's, it, it's, it's time now to do this. Right. I mean, look, uh, I'm writing literally this morning. Uh, take a time out from writing a piece on this exact issue. And, uh, look, the Senate report that came out on Thursday, which was undercovered, and it's titled Subverting Justice. It's a 400-page Senate Judiciary Committee report on how Trump uh, manipulated the Department of Justice to try and overturn the election results. It's an incredibly damning document. If it was all you had, even if you hadn't had the January 6th insurrection, everything there, it would have justified Trump's impeachment and and, and, conviction. Uh, so what I'm saying is we have tremendously more information that makes the case that Donald Trump abused his office in ways that are unprecedented in American history and create a huge danger if he were to return to office. Fiona Hill, the uh, former Trump aide, who former White House aide, who has a new book out, says that if Trump runs for office and wins in 2024, democracy's done, right? That, that, well, yeah. you know, that you're not going to get it back. And so this becomes a very critical moment. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says that anyone who participates in an insurrection or supports, uh, gives aid and support to an insurrection can be disqualified from holding office. Uh, I have argued since January 6th and even before that that should be applied to Donald Trump. I think Congress should do that now. Um, and, and they don't – here's what, what happens. Uh, legal scholars will tell you that he's already disqualified, that under the standard written that you read, what you see in Section 3, um, he's disqualified himself. But, of course, there has to be some sort of formal statement of that. And so if you were to get a House and Senate vote, just as – and you don't need – it would be great if it's bipartisan. In fact, I think it would be bipartisan. I think you'd get uh, several Republican members of the House – as well as several Republican senators, at least one, Romney, um, to vote for this. And then just to simply do a resolution saying Donald Trump is disqualified under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, that would give secretaries of state around the country, as well as election officials around the country, uh, a clear grounds to say, nope, you can't be on the ballot. You can't run in 2024. Now, Trump would challenge that in the courts. We'd have a battle royale, no question about it. Um, But I'm all for that. I'm for that fight because uh, I think that that's a way to revisit and relitigate the high crimes and misdemeanors that Donald Trump engaged in. And and I I see no harm whatsoever that comes from asserting the 14th Amendment, Section 3. In fact, I see it as, frankly, a duty of members of Congress and a duty of secretaries of state and election officials around the country to uphold the Constitution and say that Donald Trump is clearly disqualified from seeking the presidency of the United States again. Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with us again this morning here on Resistance Roundtable. You're always an honored guest here, and uh, thanks for your insight and uh, giving us a lot to think about. Till next time. <laughs> yeah, I'm honored to be with you. You give me a lot to think about when we're together. And do not hesitate uh, to call me in the future. I'll be looking forward to talking to you. 
Appreciate it, John, as always. And I hope our listeners will check out your recent articles in The Nation magazine. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Great to talk to all of you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. So we really did uh, hit a lot of important issues there in that discussion. We only got a couple of minutes left before we got to say goodbye for this month. And we'll be back next uh, uh, month. That'd be November, second Saturday of next month with another edition of this program. But um, in our one minute and 48 seconds remaining here, uh, Richard or Ruth, you have any uh, closing comments? And the clock's ticking. Keep in mind, we're on automation here. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Democrats stay strong. <laughs> Come on. Uh, that's my, my main comment. My other comment is uh, it's such a treat to have John on the, on the program. I'm really grateful that he, that he had the time. Richard, anything you'd like to say before we have um, to leave? Well, you know, we, we certainly did cover a lot of ground and, and much appreciated just to have John back again. Um, you know, it, it's just so utterly uh, bizarre and inexplicable that, well, I mean, we, we understand the corruption and uh, venality behind Joe Manchin's uh, opposition to this legislation. But it's so obvious that West Virginians would be helped by the proposal that it it, it strikes me there's this uh, di- incredible dichotomy between the reality of what people must be thinking on the ground and the fact that Joe Manchin uh, can just, based on his uh, personal interests and uh, is um, you know ambitious ambitions perhaps for even more power is uh, you know is able to maintain that uh, that extreme rejection of of this proposal and uh, it's just you know another reason for me to, to doubt that the the, uh, the structures of our democracy. Richard, we got to go, unfortunately. Yeah. We'll be back with another edition of this program, Resistance Roundtable, next month, second Saturday. See you then. Support comes from the Ridgefield Independent Film Festival. More than 30-plus films from half a dozen countries will be screened at multiple venues in Ridgefield, Connecticut, from October 7th to the 10th. The Riff's mission is to present films to enlighten, entertain, and inspire. Everything from animation to horror flicks, stories of relationships, as well as documentaries dealing with the arts, music, food, and the pandemic. More info on receptions, filmmaker Q&As, and tickets at riffct.org. That's R-I-F-F-C-T dot org. All the news that's fit to print and democracy dies in darkness. Two taglines of two major American news organizations, the New York Times and the Washington Post. WPKN is proud to offer digital subscriptions to both publications. Become a monthly sustaining supporter at $15 per month and you can have your pick of either paper for a one-year subscription. So if you already have the New York Times 